out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the American Post hardcore band. Yes, it is Bitch Magnet, who I um, caught up with very recently. Well, one member of the band, in fact. That was John Fine. Um, so we caught up, had a chat about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. One time guitarist with the band from 1986 onwards. But you'll find out much more during this exciting interview. Anyway, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. John, tell us everything. Tell us now. There are a couple of ways to answer that question because, like, there are things that were incredibly formative and important to me as a fam. But then there's something that was really important in that um, it allowed me to take a conceptual leap into music being an, an accessible thing that you could do for other people. Um, let, 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 let me kind of explain what I mean. Like, so at various, ver- from very early on, I mean, very early on, I was kind of obsessed with music. And when I say very early on, I mean, I, I mean, this is, this is true. Um, one of my early memories in, is sitting in a fucking diaper. I wasn't 16, I was like, you know, two years old. So, sit, sitting, I'm sorry, let me say that again, because I don't know if I can say that word. One of my earliest memories is sitting in a diaper um, as, I don't know, two years old, 18 months old, listening to the Beatles and looking at the back of Meet the Beatles, which I was, I had a pen and I was just sort of like, kind of like, you know, slashing it, you know, just like sort of making marks. And my parents have, my, my dad's copy of Meet the Beatles has all these weird pen marks on the back of it. So, I mean, there's some evidence that happened. So, like, I mean, th- that that was really early. And, like, my parents knew that, like, the Beatles were very soothing to me. Um, I later fell out with the Beatles. That's not particularly interesting. But, like, when I, when I was, gosh, when I was seven or eight, it's funny you mentioned glam. Because when I was, like, okay, so I was born in 68. So when I'm five in 1973... My parents took me and my older brother to the record store for the first time. Um, we lived in New Jersey in the States. So of course we had to go to a giant mall, which was terrifying. Mm. Um, and we bought a KTEL compilation of hits at the time and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John. And I became a giant Elton John fan. And like, I like listened, bought all the records, listened to him. I went to see him when I was eight, which was a really terrifying experience. Cause you know, you're little, um, I mean, imagine being an eight-year-old and confronted with what a big city conference, a concert, this is in New York City, would be like. I mean, there are smells you don't recognize, people are acting really weird, and man, it's really loud. Like, it's really, really, really loud. Um, but, but it was also very exciting. Um, and then, like, I, I dabbled in music, and because I grew up in Bruce Springsteen, I got really into Bruce, because I grew up in New Jersey, I got really into Bruce Springsteen. But, like, you know... Um, a very formative thing and like where, where the kind of where the, to me, the journey begins is, um, it's 1983. Um, I'm a Jewish kid and Jewish kids from the Northeastern U S tend to go to summer camps, um, for the entire summer in the, in the country, even though I grew up in the suburbs, it's a long story. Don't ask. Um, it goes back generations. And, you know, by the time I'm 15, I'm kind of a weird kid. Like I'm smart and I'm bookish. I'm not very socially adept. Um, I'm small. I'm not very good at sports and music is a giant comfort and refuge to me. And also by the time I'm 15, I'm just getting really tired of the social structures I see around me and I feel rejected. 
and I've got this sort of like anger that I can't really express and I'm not really getting into anything that expresses it from the music around me. And um, a friend of mine from summer camp, uh, he brought all of his brother's cassettes with him that year. And um, one cassette had never mind the bollocks on one side and fresh fruit for rotting vegetables on the other side. Right. And I'm 15 and like, actually no, I'm 14. This is 1982. Um, I'm it's one of those years I can't freaking remember. Um, and like, this is at the point where like my interests are just very divergent from the people around me and I feel lonely and I feel misunderstood and all those, all those very teenage feelings. And you're angry in that very teenage way at all those feelings. And here is the thing that perfectly gets you and also expresses it in a way that's really powerful and satisfying. Um, and I mean, like, I mean, I'm a lucky kid. I grew up in the suburbs of New Jersey. I mean, I had my own bedroom growing up. I mean, it's, it's preposterous. But, but, you know, I felt alone. I felt rejected. And like that tape, I listened to it constantly that summer. I mean, it got me through a lousy year at summer camp. I mean, I, I had a Walkman, you know, you'd put that thing on your ears and I would play it. One, one side would end and I would flip it over and I would play it and, then it, and, and that got me through. And it just, it got exciting to me. Um, I got my parents to buy me an electric guitar. I tried to form a band, but I couldn't because like back then, the only bands in my high school um, I write about this in my book, my book, Your Band Sucks, available on Peng in, from Penguin Books. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I got to do that. At my high school, like, there were bands, but they were all cover bands, like, identified with one group or another. There were a bunch of heavy metal bands. There was, like, the New Wave Band with spiky hair. There was, like, you know, the good kids on student council who did, like, pop hits like Genesis, and uh, they, they were really bad. So like if I had to form a cover band and I'm trying to form bands with my best friend, like we're trying to play REM songs, but we're not good enough to learn how to play them. Because, you know, to play music, you have to play someone else's music. Um, music at that time to me was someone like Bruce Springsteen who was playing football stadiums. And mm. I grew up in New Jersey and at the time I loved Bruce Springsteen, but it was impossible to conceive getting from where you were in the football stadium, like half a mile from Bruce Springsteen to stage. Um, then when I'm 17, I go to a college in the Midwest of America in Ohio called Oberlin. And there was a, there, there were bands on campus at Oberlin and there were bands that wrote their own music. And there was one man in particular called Pay the Man who never did anything, unfortunately. They kind of broke up before they could put out a record. But they were like, they, they were sort of in the, um, Husker Du, Soul Asylum Realm. Mm -hmm. They were a trio. Each were really good on their own instruments. Their songs were really good. And they, you know, they were aggressive without really being like, oh, they're a hardcore band or, oh, they're you know, a metal band. Um, and they were great. And you could see them every week. And um, that kind of put the thought in my head. I was like, oh, this is something you can do. And then, um, and I, I wrote about this in my book. And as corny as it sounds, it was a moment. Um, I go to see them. You know, and by going to see them, I mean like, you know, there's a party on campus and there's a, and it seems like it's a huge deal because it's a small campus, but there's, I don't know, 200 kids there. Everyone's kind of drunk, you know, it's got, a, there's a good feeling in the room and everyone's really in a pay the man and like we're slam dancing or whatever. And they, during the set, they play some covers and they start playing Hot Child in the City, uh, the song by Nick Gilder. And they finish the first verse and they realize they don't know the lyrics. And they're like, we don't know the rest of the song. Does anyone else? 
And like, I don't know how I had the guts to do this. Cause like, if this had been in like a real club, there's no way I would have done it. But I just walked on stage, you know, I was a freshman, they were, they were seniors. So they were the cool kids. And like, I was in awe of them, but I walked on stage and I grabbed the mic and I just started singing. And um, the guitarist who's Chris Brokaw, who's still doing music now and who's fairly well known. Um, you know, he did the thing that was like, for us was like the, like it was the, the, Ne plus ultra of male bonding where like you go back to back on stage with the guy. <laughs> and I'm, so I'm, I'm like in heaven and like we finished the song and like they congratulate me and I walk off stage and I'm like, I mean, dude, like the needle was just shoved into my fucking vein. And I was like, I was like, I had to do Like I walked off and I was all excited and it was, I mean, this is like the highlight of my freshman year. I mean, seriously, not mm-hmm. a lot happened in my freshman year. And like, but, but it went from, it was a really important moment as like corny as it sounds, because like in that moment, it went from being, I have to do this to like, I can do this. And like, I really have to do this. I need, I physically need to do this. Um, And uh, you know, from there on, like the path was kind of set. The, the, I'm I'm sorry, do you want to follow up? I mean, I can. No, I was just going to mention slightly forward back, going slightly back there, because I was very excited when you mentioned Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, because, because when I was growing up in the, in that sort of 60s period, you know, we were very young and my parents, when they got married in the 50s, I mean, they were working class, so they sold everything. And then slowly things started to appear in the house. I mean, we had a black and white telly until about 72 when the Olympics and they thought, get a colour telly. And then a stereo appears in sort of the early 70s. And my older brother, who's seven years older than me, brings home a couple of records, one being Sergeant Pepper by the Beatles obviously and and goodbye yellow brick road by elton john and obviously for me i was i was already obsessed with music but it was just top of the pops the radio you know and listen to radio two that my mum had on in the kitchen and um and i was transfixed with those and and the funny thing is the beatles had only just broken up by about three or four years i suppose but it seemed like they were just a band from another era but you know you're just thinking, looking back, and you think, actually, they'd only just literally sort of had split. And I did an interview with Nick Kent, the journalist from the NME, and he said when he started writing in 73, 74, he said he was the young kid. No, all the other people there who were in their, like, 20s were still waiting for the Beatles to reform. You know, he was going, no, no, they're gone. But they were still going, no, no, they're going to come back. And he was like, no, punk's coming. So There is such power. There is such power in being that person who understands that. Like, where there's such power in being the person who's not wedded to those old ways and can yes. be like, no. And like, th- 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 there's a moment when it clicks and the world comes around to you and like, you, you just feel the wind at your back. It's, it's super powerful. I mean, like, I remember, you know, just w- when Bitch Magnet uh, recorded our, gosh, I think we were mixing our first record um, in Chicago. Um, this is like 1988. And, um, you know, down the hall, there's like this really terrible new wave band with like all the hair, like, leaving the studio and they're like all full of themselves and they probably have a real recording budget and whatnot. But I'm just looking at them and I'm like, I felt kind of bad for them. Cause I was like, you guys don't know it, but it's over for you. Like, I mean, like, <laughs> the, 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 I'm, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that like my band's going to be, you know, yeah. the giant thing, but, but I'm like, I'm like, something is coming up behind you. Like, and it's like, it's just going to like, it is going to change everything you knew. And like, the, the, there's an arrogance of youth and like in many ways, um, I was wrong with everything that, you know, underground rock of the eighties and my era in particular could accomplish, but you know, that happens. I mean, you know, and the, the, the story in America that gets told, which I quite enjoy is, um, um, 
you know, the sort of um, hair metal bands, like those really kind of squishy, not very interesting bands were like, the party and getting the chicks was the thing and like music was really secondary and everything sounds terrible on those records. You know, like it really did happen. I think that in the span of like six months after Nevermind, like they went from playing sold out coliseums to like barely being able to draw a few thousand people. I mean, a generation can change like that. And Nick saw that. Nick Kent saw that then and the other guys didn't. Yes. And I think every, it was interesting because I think every 16 to 18 year old group that comes along wants their band. They don't want some old band that's been around for three or four years because it's almost like, yeah, they're just, they're kind of old. They're dirty, you know, they're, they're, they're nothing interesting. You know, someone else has got them and that's not our sound. But interesting, with Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, there is the last track on side four, Harmony. That yep. When I was very young, I had played this in that slightly young, I was about 10 at the time or a bit older. Um, but it was so sad and melancholic. I just adored it. And then I loved the Carpenters. And I thought, my God, you know, Rainy Days and Monday as a 10-year-old. So then when I started hearing Joy Division and the Smiths, I was thinking, yes, of course. You know, if you grew up listening to the Carpenters harmony, of course that's going to that's gonna resonate, isn't it? I love it. Well, I mean, it, it, it's so fun when you start drawing those connections. Um, uh, and, and, you know... I actually, I got, I got kind of excited when you mentioned growing up in the glam era because like one of my COVID rabbit holes was I started finding these comps of um, just singles of glam. Uh, you know, I guess they call it like gutter glam. I don't even know what they call it. Um, and you know, the signal to noise ratio is not great, but the, there's usually like two really good songs on each record and man, those songs are killer. They are, they're just, it's killer. It, it, it was such... I mean, I've gone down so many Slade rabbit holes on YouTube. Um, I mean, like, it's crazy how many great songs I had. And like, I, you know, I grew up in the States, like, they did nothing here until they, they had a couple hits in the 80s. But I was like, how did we miss out on all this? I mean, Goodbye to Jane, are you kidding me? I mean, like, oh my God. Like, like they, they wrote it in like 10 minutes when they were half drunk. And it's, it's genius. It is, I mean, don't change a note, man, you know? Yes. Well, interestingly, this week I did an interview with the bass player for the Glitter Band, Gary Glitter. And um, I've been wanting to do an interview with them. And I thought, no, they'll just reject me. And he said, yeah, I'll do it. And it was like, wow, the Glitter Band, because those anthems were just amazing. You know, I mean, they were just, you know, you see that and then you see the Bass Eater Rollers and then you see the Ramones and you go, oh, yeah, it does all sort of work, doesn't it? It does. It does. I mean, it's funny how like the, the DNA turns up in the weirdest places, like, you know, and, and the stuff that you hear when you're eight or nine, you know, shows up somehow. Yes, um, it does. Uh, by the way, none of this doesn't say that anything I have written or any band I've played in or will ever play in is going to re- remotely resemble Elton John because like I can't do melody like that. I mean, it's I just can't. It's not my thing. <laughs> yes. So with the 80s, which is kind of the decade that I suppose was, you know, I wouldn't say I claim it, but, you know, we had the punk period, then the post-punk world of, you know, Wire and Public Image Limited and Magazine and Gang of Four. And then Indie comes along, which I put down between the years of 83 to 87, which is the years of the Smiths. Did, did that kind of English, you know, the Cure, the Cult, the Smiths, the June Brides, the Go-Betweens, I know they're, they're Australian, but did that, did that sort of resonate with a young you? Um, so it's funny you mentioned that. Um, I was just thinking about the Smiths. The, I mean, as you well know, and I'm sure everybody you interview says, I mean, it was hard to find music those days. Um, I mean, I grew up in, I was going to high school in suburban New Jersey from 1981 to 1985. You know, um, Sonic Youth was practicing 30 miles from my high school, um, you know, in, in Manhattan. 
you know, doing their early stuff, great records. I mean, they may as well have been on Mars. I mean, I didn't hear about them for years. Um, you would like from MTV and like your weird friends and like college radio, you'd pick up on things here and there. Um, this is a long-winded way of saying that like the Smiths, the, I had the first two Smiths records and this Meet, Meet is Murder, or at least I should, I have to um, stipulate the U.S. version of Meet is Murder was very important to me. That, that is How Soon Is Now, which was like, I think the big gateway drug for a lot of Americans for the Smiths. Um, mm. I would be lying to you if I said that band has aged well for me. I mean, I, I know they've ascended to the Pantheon and like, I can't argue with the craft. Um, uh, and I'm not even gonna get on them because of Marcy's politics, although his politics deserve ridicule. Um, well, let, 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 me, let me rephrase that. Because I, I firmly believe that Marcy's politics deserve serious ridicule and be we should allow our artists to be idiosyncratic and slightly crazy, but I'll set that aside. Um, but I mean, even though I don't love the Smiths anymore, like you just can't argue with, you know, Johnny Marr. I mean, and you can't argue with them, with like them as a band, like the way they played together, I feel was very unique for British bands of that time. Um, uh, I mean, you know, my, my exposure to British bands then was, you know, perverted by what was on MTV. And that was not, you know, that wasn't the cream of the crop. I mean, I, you know, we're not sitting here talking about Howard Jones or, um, you know. Duran Duran. Yeah, Duran Duran. Well, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I mean, like, if I have to do karaoke, I'm going to fucking do Hungry Like the Wolf. And it, I mean, th th that song brings the house down. Like, I mean, they're a preposterous band. But I mean, you kind of can't argue with that song. God, I can't believe I'm admitting this on air. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I'm losing all my, whatever tiny credit I have left. Yes. Well, um, I did, I did an interview with their new league. Well, their new guitar. Well, I say new guitarist. Right. It's been with the band since 2003, but. Yeah, that, um, that, that's new. Come on. Yeah. I mean, look, look, dude, I mean, you know, ACDC's new period starts with Thunderstruck in like 1988 and that, that was 35 years ago or whatever. So, you know. Yes. So, so with, with being the English kid who suddenly, because in this country, you know, it's tiny, as you know, you can put it in your sort of back pocket. You know, we have the gatekeepers, you know, we have three weekly music papers, the NME, Sounds Melody Maker and Record Mirror. We have the great John Peel and then we have every little town and village, no, not town, town and city has an alternative indie night, don't they, from Norwich to Sheffield to you know Portsmouth everybody so you can sort of whiz around the country and sort of get that exposure very very quickly and sort of I went you know I was I was definitely not going to be part of Duran Duran it was going to be the indie pop world with John Peel listening mm -hmm. to the Bundu Boys, Napalm Death, The Smiths, any any quirky band and Sonic Youth comes out with Sister and Evil and they are just amazing and then you have you know Big Black with kerosene and and the whole surface that he introduces all the you know us too and we all sort of love them intensely so so the 80s for me was all about being sort of even more alienated and sort of having less friends than you could have imagined because you know the, this was just a conversational cul-de-sac for most people wasn't it all these kind of bizarre bands um so with with your you know being in america how does that kind of line up with you because it's such a big country, isn't it? Which I know is an obvious thing to say. Um, well, I'm, wow, there, there's, there are a lot of really interesting threads there. Um, uh, one thing that we were very jealous of uh, in the 80s was how quickly things were surfaced and like cool stuff was surfaced. And I don't wanna say put in the mainstream, but like put in front of people pretty broadly in a way that was just unthinkable in virtually every city in America. Um, 
in America, the gatekeepers were um, much less attuned to any interesting sorts of music. Uh, you know, what were the gatekeepers? The gatekeepers were commercial radio, which were a wasteland, um, MTV, which wasn't going to touch any of this stuff really um, until the 90s uh, when, when they started doing a little bit of more quote unquote alternative programming. Um, and, you know, magazines like Rolling Stone, which never really understood this. And like every now and then they would like sort of throw a bone and like give Husker Du like a five-star review. But like, you know, that, that, that's not what they were interested in. Like they were getting really excited about, you know, forgive me. Like I remember like they wrote about big countries if they were going to be the, the next Beatles. And I mean, at the, when I was 15, I kind of agree with them because like I, I couldn't find anything else. And like that was the thing in America. Like you couldn't find this stuff. There, there was no alternative night if you were a kid in the suburbs. Um, I mean, maybe if you were in a city, you could sort of grope your way around and find it. I wasn't in the city. You know, most of America, most, most Americans weren't in cities. Yeah. And there were, there, there were cities where, there were cities too in particular that I'll mention where, you know, th th there, was a, there was an oddity of local media that let you find it. And those two cities were Boston, which is a very small city where college radio is oddly on an almost, it's not quite on an even footing with commercial radio, but it's close. And so, you know, people were aware of stuff and, you know, Mission of Burma became a very big local draw um, in Boston. And like in America, like they, they would play for a, a thousand, like on their, on their last round of shows, you know, Mission of Burma played for 2000 people at their final show in Boston. And then they played, I think Detroit the next week and 20 people were there. I mean, th th that was how fragmented this was. The, the other but, but, was, Oh yeah. God, can I just, I, I, I just want to say really pause you on the Boston because I sure. did an interview with this guy, the photographer who, who said Boston was the place that every band from the UK would play. So he just yeah. was there at the same time. And oh, photo photographs of all these bands that came, this came out last year. So I sort of didn't realize that Boston was kind of the place that every band played before going to New York. Um, yeah, no, for sure. And, and I mean, because it was just easier to get the word out. I mean, I also think that because college radio was so, which is where the interesting music was played, was so omnipresent that like commercial radio there was slightly more open-minded. So you just like the door cracked open a little. And the other city was Los Angeles, where you had Rodney Bingenheimer, a local DJ, who was very committed to, you know, new music and was managed to be current through glam rock all the way through punk rock. And um, so... It's really fascinating. You know, Black Flag were an underground band in Los Angeles, but they were also s selling out the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium, which was like 5,000 people. Yes. Um, I mean, th that's extraordinary. And I mean, I have friends who would argue that Seattle was something like this, but that I think they're wrong. What, about, what about Athens, Georgia, though? Because they had... Well, I mean, Athens, uh, that's interesting. Athens is more of a hotbed because you have REM, you have... Um, B-52s. Yeah, you have B-52s and you have Pylon. But I mean, mostly those are bands that start there and then go on. I mean, Athens, Georgia is a tiny, tiny city. I mean, I could, if you'll forgive me, I'll Google the population right now. Um, <laughs> uh, no, no, because I mean, this is instructive. Athens, Georgia population, 2020, 124,000. That's tiny. Yeah, yeah, and, and it was probably smaller then. So it's basically a college town where, you know, I mean, in the Bohemian towns, like, you could be a band and like get started. I mean, Austin was another good example of that, although it's larger than um, Athens then and certainly now. But I mean, you know, th there was no, REM had to go on the road to be um, successful in any way. Whereas in Boston, 
Mission of Burma played a lot and they were, I mean, it was a hand to mouth existence, but like, you know, they were able to pay their rent and like, you know, buy hot dogs or whatever. Um, yes. You couldn't do that in a town like Athens because there just weren't enough people there to come out and support you and, you know, buy the tickets to the show and, you know, buy your singles afterward. Yes. I can't remember. There was a band from Boston called, who did a song called Jackie Onassis. I want to be like Jackie Onassis, but I can't uh, remember. Human Sexual Response? That's the yep. one. Yep. Yep. Started yep. for 10. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah. So, um, yes, I, I didn't realize that Boston had that kind of, let's play there, then go to New York. So anyway, that was, that was all groovy. Yeah. So talking of the gatekeepers, this is what the UK had. And this is obviously where, because also with John Peel, and I think possibly being from, you know, having this mindset, was there anything from America that he played? You just going to love it, whatever, you know, you're just going to go to London, you were just going to sort of make that effort because you were just desperate to, I don't know, feel like you're on the zeitgeist, I suppose. You know, it's funny. Um, like, Europe was absolutely the holy grail for um, bands like Bitch Magnet, my, my old band. Um, and it, it was true for a long time. I mean, like, like the, uh, the writer um, Legs McNeil in his book, I, I, don't think it was, I don't know if it was in his book, Please Kill Me, or just in an interview I saw, but you know, he was friends with the Ramones and like, you know, no one cared about the Ramones in America. And um, he was kind of hanging out, waiting for the Ramones to get back the first time they went to England. Um, and like hanging out meant like he was like sitting like by Johnny Ramones like front step because like he had nothing to do and that's what you did. Um, and like, so Johnny comes home, uh, I'm sorry, Joey Ramone, it was Joey. And so Joey comes home and he sees Legs and Legs is like, you know, God, like, you know, Joey, like how is England? And like, you know, this is the seventies. These are both working class kids. I mean, England is a million miles away, a million miles away. And Joey says like, kind of with a sense of wonderment, he's like, yeah, legs, it was great. Like, they really like us over there. You know, like, like all of a sudden, they, they go from playing to 100 people at CBGB to, like, pack clubs and, like, you know, um, write-ups in all the British magazines and, like, that kind of excitement that happened when, you know, your band was covered on all the, in all the magazines or ended up on the cover. Um, I mean, when we put out, when Bitch Magna put out our first record, we did it independently and, like, through some quirk in the zeitgeist or some crack in the cosmic, you know, ceiling, um, the British weeklies jumped all over it. I don't know how or why that happened. I, I have a great affection for our first record, Star Booty. It sounds like it was recorded inside of a garbage truck. Um, uh, it's a very strange record. But I mean, I, what can I say? Thanks. I mean, like it, it made everything possible for us. And then when we toured Europe. I mean, you know, we went from playing to, I don't know, 50 people, 40 people, 75 people, 100 on a good night, you know, to, I don't know, the last time we played there, we headlined the venue, which was like 1,200 seats. I think we, 1,200 capacity, like we sold it out. I mean, it was just incomprehensible. Yes. And, and, and I mean, like, and every, and like, I don't see this to I'm only saying this as a means of an example. I don't mean to self-aggrandize, but for a few years, like all of these bands that we had some kinship with, you know, and it's, and it's the noisier end of the industry scene. I mean, um, uh, this was definitely the case for Sonic Youth years before us. I mean, the bands from Seattle would go to Europe. I mean, you know, Mudhoney, Tad, um, and all of a sudden, like people, hundreds of people there and they're going absolutely nuts. Uh, and even the, the, the bands that, of, that were friends of ours, like, um, like Tar, I'm sorry, I'm blanking, like Bastro, um, which was a post-Squirrel Bait band. 
I mean, we were welcomed, like people came out. It was unbelievable. Like it made us realize that this was, I don't know, there, there was an audience. Um, we, as, as the, as the kids say today, we felt seen, but, um, but, 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 it, but I mean, it, it was like, yeah, it was like, and like, you came back with a little bit of money and you're just like, wow, that just happened. That was incredible. And then you went back to your horrible temp job and, you know, no one like really caring about your band in your, in your home state. Yes. Well, I think when, when, you know, being, you know, in this country, we just have this image that it's, it's quite different for when you go back home, we probably have this kind of idea that, you know, you're sort of quirky bohemian artists in you know loft apartments in some sort of beautiful city hanging out with all the beautiful people taking lovely drugs and sort of just making the next classic album which is slightly under yeah um well god where to start with that uh we couldn't afford the loft apartments uh we couldn't afford the lovely drugs we were we actually weren't into drugs um uh and um yeah i mean it was no it, it, it was always like uh there was always this brutal come down. Like, I mean, I, I loved touring so much. Like, it's all I wanted to do. But like, you know, you would just, you, you'd have to come home. And then like, there's that Monday where like, you're completely jet lagged, you're completely exhausted and it's 9 a.m. and you gotta be at your cubicle job and the fluorescent lights are there and like, no one's coming out to see you. No one's gonna cheer for you that day. No one's interested in, particularly interested in what you have to say even. And like, you're doing your like horrible minion job and it's like, wow. And you know, I mean, like that, that, that decompression was brutal, dude. It was brutal. I mean, oh, like, I could, I could imagine it. Cause I expect people, you know, they resent it if you go on holiday and they, they sort of make sure they've got lots of things for you to, to bombard you with for the first hour. And, and also, I mean, like, like they had no idea what you were doing. And like, honestly, like it wasn't even worth telling them. Like they, they, they had no conception of it. I didn't want the people that I worked with. This is kind of pre Google. I didn't want the people I worked with knowing I was in a band. I mean, like, I like they were going to say something idiotic, like, "Oh, you should meet my brother. He's he, he's a blues guitarist. You should jam with him." I'm like, "No, no, that's <laughs> never going to happen." And by the way, your brother isn't in a band. Like, if he plays in like some gazebo in his hometown once a year, like that's not being in a band, okay? Like, like <laughs> the, the, the 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 people the people whose music I care about, like, you know, they're living and dying with this stuff. They're good. They're making, you know, they're, they're, they're going on the road. I mean, they're getting in a van accidents. Like, you know, they're, they're playing, they're showing up in towns and people are throwing bottles of beer at their head. Cause they don't understand their music. Like your brother is not that do not, do not equalize us with that. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I can, I can still get my hackles up about that. Yeah, I had, I, I can, you know, I I had so many conversations like that and they would end with, I'm like, I'm like, dude, I, I don't want to do this, but I like, I really want to punch you right now. Like, please stop. Please, can we talk about something else? Something stupid like, like, like some sport I don't know anything about or pizza? I mean, please, you're embarrassed. All, all the stationery covered instead, having to try and sort of get some stationery. But yeah, well, it's interesting just on that thing of touring because I did an interview. I know it sounds boring, but with Miles Copeland, who was managing the police, and he Excuse said, me. "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Why would an interview with Miles Copeland sound boring in any fashion? <laughs> Come on!" <laughs> but he was, yeah, he is fascinating. But he said the most important gig for the police was in America in front of four people, but one of them was a kind of a college DJ who you know, picked up the band, put them on the charts or put them in a chart that someone from A&M Records picked up. And it was like, okay, we've got some traction. But it was like, he said, if they'd walked away from that gig in, with four people in America, they wouldn't have gone to the next level. And and he said, that's, that's you know, that's what you have to do when you're sort of starting the band. You have yeah, to. well, but, but it was also, touring was so joyous. Like, I mean, I loved it even when it was terrible. I mean, it, it was just so exciting to 
throw your gear in a van, drive for like three hours, you know, like talk about idiotic stuff with your bandmates who hopefully you get along with. And I, I was lucky to sometimes generally. Um, and like anyone who came out, it was, it was great. I mean, at first, you know, you know, in the end it gets hard when it's like, you know, you've been doing it for, you know, 10, 15 years and you're playing Cleveland, Ohio on a Monday night and there's eight people there and like nobody there, neither you or the audience particularly wants to be in Cleveland that night. Um, but um, I, I didn't, it didn't feel like work for a very long time. It felt like an incredible privilege. Um, yes, well, absolutely. So look, just going slightly back, how did the band actually form? Because you mentioned that you'd, 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 you were sort of there, you'd start, you'd gone to college, hadn't you, in Ohio? And then yeah. sort of, how did the, how did you sort of get together with the other members of the band? So um, my freshman year, there were, uh, you know, there's there a good college radio station and I, I was friends with the DJs and um, I, I don't know how to explain it, but there was like the sort of like weird radar you could have to identify people who are into punk rock, even if they weren't wearing spiky hair. And um, there was like this, there was this Asian dude on our campus um, who I was like, we had mutual friends, but I didn't know him. And I, I kind of like, I was, I was like, I kind of got a vibe from him. And then one day I saw him walking around with a copy of Who's Caduce's first record. And I was like, yep, I was right. You know, he's into this weird shit too. And um, his name was Su Young Park. And uh, we, he was in a band and I was trying to be in a band. And um, th that, that was the rest of our freshman year. And then we came back for our sophomore year and I was trying to put together a band with some of my closest friends, but none of us could really play well. And so it was, and I, we also made the mistake of thinking that it was a good idea to get drunk before you practice, which is a very, this is a very bad idea. Like that, that seemed really like, the, the, it was a mistake that we gleaned from the ethos of the replacements, which is not one that, you know, non-alcoholic non should do. It's, it's a very bad idea. Um, and like, so my, it's sophomore year, it's like October, my band isn't going anywhere. And Su Young is writing songs and he's not really getting his new band to play them. And then that band breaks up that he's in. And I don't, it's hard to explain. Like he found me in the uh, college library. Excuse me. Let me. I'm sorry. Let me. Hey. Hold on. Oh, how exciting! Oh, hit pause. Jesus. Okay. Um, is it? It's not in the. It's not in the. My my, my wife is. Oh, I'm sorry. Right. I'm sorry. My, my wife was dealing with a situation. And I had to take that. All right. So, oh, God. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Yes. So, so, so I love to because they had to, they must have at that stage had candy apple gray, but not where. Oh, yeah, you know, no, but, but, but we were. Um, so anyway, so, so going back to, yeah, thank you. You remember where, 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 where do you want me to pick up? I'm sorry. Yeah. Say. So that's fine. So you, you saw this other chap and you were yes. going, oh, we've got the connection, but we haven't. No, so, we, so we have the connection and it's, um, you know, so for the rest of freshman year, like we are doing different things. And then we come back for a sophomore year. Uh, I try to do a band that doesn't work. Um, do you want me to like just re retell that story? Would that be useful? No, no, that's fine. Yes. All right, so, so, so at any rate, the Sue Young's band breaks up. And um, I don't know how to explain how this happened. It, it, I mean, it, it, it was kind of, it was almost nonverbal, but like, I had heard because it was a small place that his band had broken up. And like that evening, he found me where I studied in the college library. And like, we just were like, I don't know if we said anything, but we just kind of like smiled at each other. And like, like we were going to start a band. Like it was obvious we were going to start a band. And I didn't realize it until much later, like, like basically until I wrote my book, but like he basically poached me from my own band 
And yet I was happy about it. I mean, he had songs, like he, he was kind of like, we understood the thing we wanted to do. And he was writing songs that like with each one, they were getting better and better and better. Like, you know, we, we had a, we, we were initially playing with another drummer, um, a drummer who's not on the records, who wasn't right for us. Um, he was a lovely dude, but he was a hippie and he couldn't play fast. And I wanted to be in a hardcore band. So this was a, this was a giant problem. Um, <laughs> but, but what was important is that like seeing was just kept getting better and better songs. And somehow, even though I couldn't really play guitar, I was doing something that he seemed to like. Um, and then uh, we, the drummer who had been in that band, Pay the Man, who I'd gotten on stage with, a guy named Orestes Delator, who's now known as Orestes Morphine, um, he came back to college. Uh, he had taken a semester off um, and uh, to play in Pay the Man, and Pay the Man broke up, and he came back. And um, we just, I don't know how we did it, because we were a very formative band, and um, we weren't particularly good. Um, so Young's songs had pro promise. We weren't executing them. I was kind of a disaster on stage. Uh, couldn't keep my guitar in tune. But somehow we talked Orestes into playing with us. And at that point, it just dimensionally got, like, everything snapped into place. Um, the difference between playing with a sort of okay drummer and a really good drummer is dimensional. Absolutely. Yes, and like it's, it's, it's I suppose Bleach and Nevermind, wasn't it? Or I don't know. I, I did an interview with a guy called Bo Huwadine, who was in the Bible, and he said, "You know, if you get a good drummer, you, you, you're just about there. The band can sound fantastic. It's everything about the drummer." Yeah, and um, it and particularly for a trio, which we were, um, and it, it just opened up so many possibilities. And uh, his musicality and his like his physical skill and his physical endurance um, and just like all the influences he brought in. I mean, his dad, Orestes, uh, Orestes dad passed away when he was very young, but um, his dad was a percussionist and he was, um, he did Latin percussion. So Orestes grew up hearing all that and lo like lots of other music from different parts of the world. And, you know, it's really corny when you say like, he brought all those influences in. It wasn't really that. It was just that Orestes understood many different kinds of music and he could pull out like, like he would do this crazy thing to start a song as he did with a bitch magnet song motor, like this really crazy pattern on the snare. And I'm like, that's amazing. He's like, yeah, you know, it's kind of adapted from this sort of like Dixieland jazz thing. And he would play it. And I'm like, I was like, how do you know all this stuff? Like, I mean, I, I like kind of know how to tune my guitar. I listen to a lot of stuff, but you know, to play with someone who knows the theory and the composition and can then execute on it, it in a way that it's actually good and not some like sort of really cornball thing that's going to be mainstream or, you know, like what was terribly titled world music, which was when white people tried to play, you know, overtly African inflected music badly. Yes. Um, by the way, if you, that, if you use that, don't make me sound like an idiot or like, <laughs> um, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's everything. And, um, and from there on, I don't know, man, like a young band that, uh, has talented people in it. And by the way, I want to be clear about this. They, I was not among the talented people in Bitch Magnet at this time. Um, but a young man that has talented people in it and that has like drive and is interested in it, like they can develop very quickly. I am not, I, I want to be very clear about this. Like I am not putting Bitch Magnet into this category, but um, at all. But let's consider how far Joy Division developed in the span of two years, from like the first demos to um, uh, 
their first album, maybe even Diana, because they did so much. In the, in the, I mean, it's crazy. And like, there, there are millions of examples like that out there. Um, you know, like, you know, the Zeppelin recorded the first album, like, I don't know how many months after they met each other. Um, it's, it's crazy. And I mean, so, like, again, like, Beach Magnet was not that, but you know, when th there's just something about youth and energy and like, something beyond enthusiasm, even compulsion to keep playing and like this addiction of like wanting to practice all the time, you can, you can just travel so far and develop so fast. Yes, but that, that commitment is, is only going to last such a short period of time, isn't it? And most bands don't do it, but obviously, you know, bands like Joy Division. And I, I do put the Smiths, even though, you know, obviously it's a bit embarrassing now, but you know, that-, that well, I mean, There's a reason why Joy Division didn't last very long, unfortunately. Yes, there's a big. But, but I mean, like to me, it's really telling um, that you know after all the guys in that band processed you know unimaginably horrible news. Like you know, I mean, Peter Hook says this in like his memoir. Like, I mean, they kind of looked at each other and they're like, "Yeah, so like practice next week." And they're like, "Yeah." I mean, it's like that's what they did. Um, I don't know. I mean, that that's. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's obviously a unique circumstance, but I mean, it's just really interesting to me. Like they didn't fall apart. And they, it, it wasn't, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that it wasn't, music wasn't something they were passing through. Like they, they were really doing it. And like, it, and it's, and further, it goes beyond that. It's what they had to do. It's what they had to do to like, you know, physically survive as humans and to physically survive like an unimaginable tragedy. Yes, well, it, absolutely. But when you listen to that first Smiths album, you know, the production, the sound, it was like me, it was all yeah. right, but you can't really see, well, you can't, you think there's potential, but perhaps they won't, you know, perhaps this is it, you know, and then suddenly you think, okay, things are really getting better now. They've started to get the sound, they've got better producers. They're sort of, yeah, it just sounds completely different. And that John Peel session, uh, or the Sessions album, Hatful of Hollows, or Hollow, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just such a superior sound to the first album, which I thought was quite interesting. And it had people like Dale Griffith, who was the uh, producer. Well, no, he's the musician with Mott the Hoople, wasn't he? So, um, yeah. Oh, I didn't even know that. It, it, it all comes back to glam, doesn't it? It does come back to glam, dear old Dale Griffith. Well, he did all those BBC, I did a lot of the John Peel BBC sessions. So uh, He did? Oh, wow. I had no idea. God, I'm learning so much. That's great to know. Dardell Griffin. But so, but yeah, how did Steve Albini suddenly appear in your life? <laughs> um, you know, it, the, the, one of the really joyful things of that era was how, um, what's the, how, how to put this, how, how accessible everything was. Um, how did we get in touch with Steve Albini? We sent out a bunch of cassettes to people. Like we sent out a bunch of cassettes to people who, um, ran record labels that we thought might be interested in us. You know, there were probably 15 to 20 in America. And at the time, Steve Albini was running a label called Ruthless, which I don't know, ultimately they put out like five records. Mm -hmm. But we were like, yeah, you know, maybe. And, you know, to his credit, because I mean, and I'm still kind of astonished at this because, um, you know, when I, you know, met Steve Albini and went to his house, I saw how many cassettes he would get, you know, I mean, like there were just piles everywhere. But, he listened to our cassette, which was, I mean, very badly recorded. Um, and he made some reasonably nice comments about it. And I don't remember what they were, but I think he said something about like, you know, by the way, if you want to record, like, give me a call. And I was like, oh my, oh my God. You know, like, and to him, it's like, you know, well, you know, these are musicians. I'm a musician. I record musicians. This is what I do. And like, you know, to us, it's like, wow, this 
person of some import is reaching out to us. But I mean, you know, it, it's a useful lesson in that. No, and like this world wasn't hierarchical in the way that I thought it was in the 80s when I was going to see Bruce Springsteen. I mean, there, there isn't that much of a distance between, between you and the, uh, and the other guys. So, I mean, how do we get in touch with him? Like, we sent him a cassette. He actually sent us a postcard back. I got him on the phone. You know, he had insanely cheap day rates to remix a record. Um, I don't know if it was 500 bucks. Um, in retrospect, um, we were, and I, I am happy to state this for the record, it was naive and stupid of us to refer to him as a producer because that's not what he did. He did some remixing. Um, he gave us some shit about that. Can I say that? Yeah, yeah. He, uh, I don't, I, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the, what the protocol is. Um, he, he gave us some shit about that. He gave me some shit about that personally. It's deserved. Um, uh, and he made a, re, a record that we recorded um, at a very ill-equipped A-track that was, you know, part of the Oberlin Music School. He made it sound something better than it was, which should give you an idea of how ridiculous it sounded to begin with. I mean, um, at times, like, when, when he was going through it, like, the, um, the tape noise on one of the overdub guitar tracks was almost as loud as, like, the overdub itself. I mean, he had to, he had to I don't know how he did it, but he, he did it. Um, but um, yeah, that, that was the guitar sound. It's, uh, so it what, has, just, just explain, why was he annoyed that you didn't, you'd put him as producer, not engine? His um, perspective, uh, as I understand it, and like he, he is, uh, I'll, I'll say that again, because I know we had a little jingle there. Um, his perspective, as I understand it, and I may be misrepresenting it, but, but this is my understanding, um, is that a producer is if um, I go to listen to your, to David's band as they rehearse, and I make comments about the songs, which are then taken and the songs are kind of rewritten. And we go into the studio and I'm like barking at you guys and I'm telling you to do it 85 times. And uh, I decide ultimately that the snare drum roll on this song is actually going to go in another song. Like I'm doing all that crazy shit. Whereas his thing is like, no, I'm an engineer. I set up the microphones, I hit record, um, you do the performance and I put it on tape. That's it. And um, I, I understand that distinction, and it's a, it's a fair distinction. He didn't produce Pitch Magnet. I mean, he, he remixed it. And um, uh, I've had my ups and downs with Steve over the years. Hey, thanks, Steve. I mean, thank you for making that record sound decent enough to be able to see the light of day. Yes. But anyway, the enthusiasm must have been there because there's nothing like feeling progress. And then you get signed to Glitterhouse Records for the, for the first album. Uh, yeah, well, we, we got signed. Actually, we we get, oh wow, dude. We uh, do you remember what goes on records? Does that name mean anything to you? They had they, yes. They had the telescopes. They had uh, I'm trying to remember who their big bands were. They, they they had a lot of American bands at the time, but the telescopes I think were their big UK act at the moment. Um, we got signed. So so we we put out our own record, um, thousand copies. By hook or crook, it sells out very quickly. We we were astonished and freaked out, and um. A few record labels got in touch with us. Uh, we gave the European rights to what goes on. Uh, we signed a two record deal, um, like with actual advances and everything. Um, and they proceed to go out of business after our second record. And then, then we signed to Glitter House for our last record. Right, so that was that really. And what's your memory of putting, putting down, uh, putting the next, the first full length album out? Did you have all the songs all written and ready to go on that? So, so there's the band part of it and there's the personal part of it. And I'll, I'll start with the band part of it. And you can decide if you even want to use the personal part of it. <laughs> so, you know, for the band, like the, the, there was a big buildup to it because I knew that Sue and we, 
I knew, we all knew that the next batch of songs were dimensionally better. And I can't speak for the other guys because we didn't really talk about that stuff because we didn't talk about this stuff much. But like, I knew like, I was a kid who was always sort of looking for his place in the world. And like, there was a culture that meant the world to me that I discovered. And by being a fan of it, and being a fan of the bands that formed that culture, like it saved my life. And I, I don't say that term lightly or glibly. I mean, it saved my life. It gave me a reason to keep going. And then I was in a band that was accepted in that culture. And then as we're getting ready to make the second record, I'm like, this is going to be a really good record. Like, I'm not saying we're Sonic Youth. I'm not saying we're Black Flag. Um, but like, this is a really good record. Like, people are going to notice it. Mm -hmm. Like, like, we, we, like, dimensionally, it's better. Like, and like, it was a crazy, powerful feeling. I mean, like, I couldn't sleep from the feeling. It was so exciting. Uh, and so we're like, we were going to record it actually in Chicago, but there was a death in the family, um, in Arresti's family, and we had to cancel at the last minute. And trivia quest, trivia. Um, this was January of 1989, and uh, Steve Albini was left with some. Um, studio time that he had a deposit on, called a bunch of bands he knew to see if anyone could take that time. Mm -hmm. And a very obscure band at the time took him up on it and recorded a few songs. And that band is called Slint. Yeah. And those songs came out on a 10 inch that they released posthumously. Um, anyway, sorry, it's a detour. So, you know, so we're, we're like playing shows and like we're starting to play out of town and we're playing in Boston, we're playing in New York. And like these songs are forming and we're rehearsing and like I could, you know, I could feel it building. Um, and that's a really amazing feeling when you're 21. Um, I told you I was going to tell the band version of this and then the personal version. And I'm sorry, I, I can only intertwine it. I'm, I'm yes. inside my own head, David. What can I tell you? Um, look, dude, you've known me for how long? 20 minutes, 25 minutes. Like you can tell I'm, I'm, I'm a grown man in my fifties. Like I talk fast, I get excited. I speak with my hands. Um, I'm a high strung person. You can imagine what I was like when I was 21. And like the one thing I wanted to do more than anything was coming true. And the band like that I was in, the first band I was ever in is like becoming something real. Like, and I can see the world responding to it. And I know that the next record is going to be a big deal. Um, so what's the term? I was kind of an asshole. I was arrogant. I was loud mouthed. Um, you know, my enthusiasm was hard to contain and probably hard to be around. And I was not a great bandmate. Um, and this is a long-winded way of saying that in the spring of 1989, a month before we're supposed to go into the studio, Sue sits me down and says, you're out of the band. Like, like we, we, you know, we want you to leave, um, which is personally devastating. Um, however, I managed to sit him down the, ne in the next couple of days and say like, okay, look, I get it, but we need to record this record. Like, you know, like, you guys do your thing. I mean, we, we were setting up tours of Europe and everything. I'm like, you guys do that. I get it. I'm not in the band, but, but we both know that like, like this unit, like th that we can do these songs right. And we're going to do these songs, right? Let's not mess this up. Like, and so, so we record this album that I know is going to be really great. I mean, I'm sorry to be self-aggrandized. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, I'm like, I, I felt it. I stand by that record. It, it, it is a very good record. I'm deeply proud of it, but the recording of it and the rehearsals of it leading up to it were kind of fraught because like, like I'm there, but I'm not there. And like all the exciting stuff that's going to happen after, that's not, I'm not a part of it. 
Um, so uh, it was a uh, <laughs> it was a complex melange of emotions. And oh um, my god, yeah, absolutely! I've done literally hundreds of interviews. I've never heard this this a particular story like this. Actually, this is well. What can I? Let's just. I mean, um, part of it is like we were all like twenty one and twenty two, and not very good at communicating. But also, I mean, like uh, you know, I had the personality that like I was kicked out of my own band. Okay, you know, so. So that was kind of weird. And then like the album comes out and um, the press on it, the UK press is rapturous. I mean, like, you know, Melody Maker, um, you know, pictures of the band running, you know, like, I, I don't remember. I mean, like, I don't know if they were four star or whatever, five star reviews, but I mean, like they, they were really nice reviews. And Bitch Magnet is touring in Europe without me and I'm seeing the reviews of their shows at the Greyhound and everywhere, you know, and they're rapturous and I'm not there. Um, and so, so the tour goes well, I, I guess, I gather. Um, I'm not really in touch with those guys. This is um, the fall of 1989. And I'm doing my thing in New York, and I'm not in touch with those guys. And uh, in early 1990, I get an, a letter out of the blue from Sue Young. And like, there, there's some stuff we talk about having to do with royalties, I think. And, uh, and um, then he's like... Um, you know, I don't remember. It's a letter or a phone call. I'm sorry. I, I, I have the right story in my book, I swear. Yeah, yeah. But, um, and then he's like, um, all right, well, um, I want to do one more uh, Bitch Magnet record and then I'm quitting music forever. Um, and you should play on it. And I'm like, yeah, dude, you know, I don't know. Um, I got to think about it. You know, like, I got a pretty bad taste in my mouth from how things went down, you know, like, and he's like, he's like, okay, I understand. Um, by the way, I'm paraphrasing all this. And he's like, okay, I understand. But um, let me send you a cassette of something I'm working on. So he uh, overnight mails me a cassette of a song that becomes the song Dragoon, which is the first song on our last album. And I listen to it a couple of times and I call him up and I'm, I, I listen to it a couple of times and uh, I call him back and I say, yeah, let's make a record. Let's do this. Yeah, I'm in. Right. Nine minutes. That's quite a, that's quite a change of musical direction. It wasn't nine minutes. Uh, it wasn't nine minutes at the time, but like it was, uh, and I, God, David, I wish I had that tape. Like the, 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 Sue would do these amazing fuzzed out four track demos. And he had, he had a demo of our song motor that like for our, the bitch magnet reissues that came out, I dude, I spent like a day at my parents' house trying to find that damn cassette. Like it was, the, the, the demo version that he did is so great. It's like, I think it was just him and Distorted Bass. It's like, it's the, like, it kills me I can't find that. And it kills me that I can't find his Dragoon demo. Um, uh, so anyway, like, you know, we got back together. We did a lot of rehearsing. Um, uh, this was an album for Glitter House. You know, we had advances. So like, you know, I could take a month off from work or six weeks off from work. And like we did pre-production and, uh, by which I mean we rehearsed at my parents' house. And then we uh, recorded some of it in Chicago. Uh, we recorded the rest of it in New York um, and came out. And then unfortunately, Rusty's left the band and uh, we toured without him. I I'm, I'm racing through stuff. Yeah, well, yes. yeah, I'm sorry, just stop. I, I will stop after seeing, after seeing Ask Me in the band, you know, follow up on anything, I'm sorry. What was that? Sorry, I missed that last uh, bit. Follow up on anything, I'm sorry, I'm getting, I'm, compressing a year into yes no because because i was just thinking the, the timing must have been you know having sort of you had bleach come out then never mind then this kind of rise of interest in in sort of kind of i suppose much more noise bands at that point so you must have felt like we we should be really sort of lapping this up 
Well, you know, it's, it's odd. Um, how to put this? Again, like, like you, man, like I got to tell you, within that question, there's so many interesting things. So first of all, um, this is kind of forgotten now, but for a long time in America, and in America especially, Nirvana was like a second or third tier band on Sub Pop. Um, you know, their first thing was like, okay, whatever. Um, I didn't much care for Bleach when it came out. Um, and make of this what you will, in these, gosh, I believe it was the spring of 1990, I went to see a bunch of bands at a great small club in Manhattan called The Pyramid. And one of the opening bands was a band from Seattle called Nirvana. And at this point they had two guitarists and I go in and they're like halfway through one of their songs and everybody's got long hair and they're flying it around. And um, there's 15 people there. And, you know, my hand on whatever sacred text you put in front of me, I leave after two and a half songs. I'm like, eh, like th this is, this is not an interesting band. Like I, I don't care. And um, I mean, yeah. So, and so, so th th that was the thing about Nirvana. Um, but more to the point, like, I know we, we didn't, you know, the, there was so much going on in America and um, the bands that we, we were probably, you know, we were friendly with like bands from Chicago, bands from the Midwest and Louisville. We were friends with Slint and Bastro, which was a post-squirrel bait band with David Grubbs. Um, we were friends with Urge Overkill before they had their ill-fated dalliance with major labels. And, um, you know, we weren't thinking in terms of, you know, this is going to be huge. Like at that point, you know, even before Umber came out, like it was clear that there was an ecosystem that, and th that there was an ecosystem that responded to us and we were able to be on a band. We were able to be a band on a level that mattered to us. Like we were able to put out records, have people respond to them. We were able to go on, you know, six week tours of Europe um, that went well, you know, mm -hmm. that were, you know, that, I mean, we weren't getting rich, but like, you know, you could tie that in with some temp work and you could do this thing. And that's all we wanted. Um, we did not have any illusions about um, major labels. You know, you and I are old enough to know that there was a giant thing about major label versus indie label back then. And um, yes, Sonic did. Yeah, that was yeah I mean, like, like that, that, that distinction has collapsed. But, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm much less, um, uh, I don't really care about that distinction as much as I used to, is a good way to put it. But it didn't matter because, like, I didn't see a place for a band like Bitch Magnet on a major label. I definitely saw a place for us in the indie label, very comfortable place, very happy place in the indie label ecosystem. Man, that was enough. Like, yes. there was no illusion that this was, that we were going to fund our children's college education. Not, not that my wife and I have any children, because we don't. Um, you know, we weren't going to fund a ch an education with, um, uh, with, you know, our royalties. You know, we weren't going to buy a house off it. That, that, that wasn't the goal. Like, um, and, and that was fine. And there was stuff going on in Seattle that like, I mean, I like the first Nirvana, the first few Nirvana records a lot. Um, uh, and Mark Arm is actually a very good friend of mine now, but th that stuff wasn't really my thing. And um, the, 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 there were bands that much more comfortably could make that leap. We, we got a couple of phone calls from major label representatives and like, we're just like, whatever. Like, so like, they, like, if you're calling us, you actually don't understand what you're doing. Cause like you, if you, if you understood what we were doing, you would know that one, we're not anywhere near right for what you are doing. And two, we are not interested in what you're doing. <laughs> no, I'm, so, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying this to be an asshole about it, but I mean, it's just like, it just, 
it wasn't our thing. You know, yes. Well, it was I mean, quite funny at that point, I was an asshole about it, but I mean, like, it just, it just didn't make sense. Well, I do. I did an interview with a member of Cylon who said that they broke up because their their manager said, "Look, great, you know, I've got you on a, a support slot with you too." And there's like, "I've told you, we don't want a support slot. We don't want to do that. So we're going to just break up." So fuck you. <laughs> oh, you know that I, I don't know that band, but that makes me sad because like they should have just fired their manager. I mean, like we didn't have a manager. I mean, you know, I, I, I mean. I'm not trying to be, I don't know, man, I'm not trying to be difficult, but like, how hard is this stuff? Like, how hard is it to book a tour? Like, at the time, here's a telephone, here's a list of people to call, like, go. Like, or, or yeah, and once you get past that, like, you know, are you a band big enough where a booking agent will do that for you? Is there a booking agent you like who will do it for you? Great, go. Like, how hard is it to put out a thousand copies of a record and how expensive was it? I can tell you, it cost us $3,000. Like, okay, that's money. Is it an unfathomable sum of money for, you know, kids who are lucky to like, you know, still be like, who are young enough to be living with their parents and not paying rent and can like scrape it together with odd jobs? Like, no, that, that's not an insurmountable amount of money. Like, is it that hard to do with things that happen to you, you know, on the road? Like, no, like, like bands that we like, we were friends with, like they didn't, you didn't need managers. And, um, you know, to sort of put a bow on this, um, years after this, I mean, and uh, I, 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 this is somewhere in the mid nineties um, and it's in New York city. And I'm like friendly with the, the rhythm section of helmet and like they're drinking buddies. And um, I'm not drinking with um, among other people, John Stanier, who's the drummer from helmet. And like, I come out to the bar and I greet him. I'm like, John, man, what's going on? And he's like, ah, helmet's breaking up. I got to get a lawyer. And I was like, all right, dude, like you're, you're in a band on a level I will never understand. Like I, like, how did my bands break up? Like, you know, we called each other up or we sat each other down and we're like, yeah, like we're quitting. I mean, but I mean, I get that, you know, like they had a complicated major label arrangement and a major label manager and all this stuff. And like, I don't know, man, if you're not that band and if that's not right for you, and there were many ways to have a fulfilling and even a financially uh, rewarding, um, uh, stint in music at that time without it. I mean, why do it? We didn't need to do it. Yeah, and, then, and I'm I'm really sorry for the dudes in Cylon or the dudes and women in Cylon that it came to that. Yes. Um, well, I, I guess I, I guess they they didn't want that. So look, two things. Then so when you sort of after the album Ben Hur, you just said you didn't tour that. You just literally broke up after that. No, no, no. We 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 did. Um, we toured uh, the U.S. and um, uh, we. We toured the U.S. We did 20 shows in America, and uh, I got like 35 shows in in, uh, in the U.K. and Europe. Right. Yeah, we, we we had a, we had a drummer who replaced Orestes, who um is a brilliant musician in his own right, but it didn't work out. And um, what what happened was we toured America off Ben Hur, and it was a it was a pretty good experience. Um, it was a better experience than touring had been in the past. Like you know we we knew how to do it, and um. Touring America was hard in those days because, uh, like, the it was still hard to find out about that music. But you know, we 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 made it work. And um, as I remember it, we came home. Home at that point was North Carolina, um, and uh, I remember seeing and I sat down and we did the tour accounting. And like, we found out. Like to me, this was a fairly a reasonably successful tour, and we did all the numbers. And we found out that like we lost like five dollars, and I was like, oh, well, that's kind of a bummer, I guess. Um, 
and seeing had kind of a similar reaction. Um, but then in a few days, he called a band meeting. And, you know, this time we were like about three weeks away from going to tour Europe and uh, Sion calls a band meeting and he says, well, um, I want to let you guys know that um, uh, I've applied to, um, you know, a graduate school uh, and I'm going to start uh, in January. And at which point the drummer says like, yeah, all right, well, in that case, I'm going to leave the band too. And I'm like, well, you know, uh, I, I don't remember if we actually said we're breaking up. Um, I mean, you know, it's entirely possible, but I, I guess my reasoning was, you know, I didn't want to sit around in North Carolina, um, you know, where I moved to, you know, be in the band and, and like, you know, wait for Seung to be done with class. I mean, like if he was not really that into it anymore, um, I wasn't going to um, force it in any way. Um, I do regret that deeply that Orestes left the band. Um, uh, and funnily enough, he's told, I mean, I don't think he'd mind me saying this because um, he's said it to me many times. Like he, he regrets it too, uh, you know, like that. But um, push came to shove. And, you know, this happens in bands. Like I loved everything about this culture. I loved the bands. I loved touring. I loved going to rock shows to see these bands. I loved hanging out at rock clubs, talking to other people about bands or about my band. And um, Orestes was a real pure musician. And like, he didn't like that stuff. And like, he didn't have any, he didn't have a lot of tolerance for, you know, the bullshit of like industry people. Like, I mean, if, if I had to deal with annoying people to, you know, put our record out or to um, you know, book a tour, like I'd do it, man. I wanted that stuff. And like Orestes had very little patience for that. And like, he, you know, he wasn't a super fan like me. He was, he was a real pure musician. Like he played the stuff. It wasn't like, he didn't need to buy all the new records that came out. That wasn't his joy. And um, so like, he didn't enjoy rock clubs. He didn't like, he, he was kind of athletic minded. Like, you know, he didn't like being around a ton of cigarette smoke. You know, he did, he was very disciplined about not drinking before the performance. Cause like he was going to perform, you know? And um, he didn't like, he didn't, he just didn't like touring. And um, I would have gone on tour for a year, you know? I mean, that, that, that's all I wanted to do. And, you know, that happens. So you did Europe and then that was it. Yeah, came that on. was it. So then, because the band reform again, don't they? Like, yeah. uh, I'm sorry, repeat that. You kind of, I said, um, I said the band reforms again for a few dates 10 years ago. So, uh, yeah. So what happens is, um, uh, for years, there's a, a record label called Temporary Residence who puts out, I think they put out Mogwai, um, they put out Mono, a um, bunch of other bands. And their label head, Jeremy Devine, Jer Jeremy Devine, who's a lovely human being, he'd been after me for years to do Bitch Magnet reissues, and I kind of put him off and put him off and put him off. And finally, around 2010, we get to work on it. And... Um, it's announced that we're getting to work on it. And um, uh, I'm trying to remember the, uh, oh yeah, okay, so this is how it goes. And, um, and as a means of completing the, so we, we, we do a reissue package with Temporary Residence and it's like reissue package, like triple album, you know, like empty the vaults. And there's there some stuff we had lying around that were, it was, in between Star Booty and Umber, songs that ended up on Umber, but were different versions. And, um, you know, we do some remixing and uh, there's, there's some stuff. And by doing the remixing, we all meet with each other again. And, um, and like, you know, we remix the record and you know, it's nice being around each other. You know, we spend some time drinking and whatnot. And um, 
Then uh, in the summer of, I guess, 2011, before the record comes out, um, I go out to dinner. My wife and I go out to dinner with two friends of ours whose names perhaps you know. Um, Ian Williams from the, friend ba- from the band Battles and his wife. And um, I hadn't seen Ian in a little while. And we sit down at the restaurant and, um, you know, I'm like, Ian, what's going on? He's like, oh, you know, well, uh, I just heard um, we're curating um, all tomorrow's parties uh, in, uh, you know, Minehead uh, in the UK in December. And I'm trying to figure out um, who should play there. And then his wife immediately says, hey, Ian, why don't you ask Pitch Magnet to reform? And Ian looks at me and like, I kind of see the light bulb go on and I'm like, oh, okay. And then he tells me I'm going to get a call from Barry Hogan of all tomorrow's parties. Um, and I get a call from Barry and, uh, much has been said and written about Barry Hogan. Um, and, uh, I've had, you know, I've had my arguments with him, but, um, Barry made us an offer. Uh, and then he made a second offer and it was a very nice offer. And, um, in the background, Orestes and I had been sort of talking about, Orestes brought it up first, but he was like, are we going to get back together? And I was shocked because I'm like, you're the dude who never wanted a tour. So wait, am I hearing this right? And he's like, yeah, like, would we do shows? And I was like, well, um, I didn't think it was possible, but I'd do it. And then like, you know, we're having this conversation, like how can we convince C. Young to do this? Cause C. Young at this point is living in Singapore and he's running a business and he's a busy guy. Like, you know, he's, he's got his business, has clients in like Europe and America. So he's flying all the time. He's got a pretty crazy life. Um, but uh, I'm able to go back to the band and be like, you know, so Orestes and I get set up a conference call with Su Young. And I'm able, to, I'm able to say like, all right, so here's the deal. Uh, I got a call from this guy who wants us to reform for all tomorrow's parties. And um, here's how much money he's going to pay us. And it's, uh, so obviously that's more than enough for us to fly to meet in one place, rehearse for a week, and then fly to London and do this. And also, you know, um, it was made clear to me that if we wanted to do some shows in Europe, um, that, you know, we could do that and the money would be, you know, enough to, you know, do it. I mean, you know, we're not going to get rich, mm-hmm. but I mean, you know, we're not going to lose money and people are interested. And to my shock, cause Seung was always kind of reluctant about, he was always forever reluctant about touring and forever reluctant about doing the next thing. And remember, um, I don't know if you remember, but I said to you, when he came to me to, to rejoin the band for, for Ben Hur, he said like, this is the last record I'm doing. This is before he, by, mind you, he went on to do like six records in Seam and like a whole other band, but fine. <laughs> so, so we thought we, we, had, we it was going to be impossible to talk seeing into this. And like, all of a sudden it's like, yeah, okay, we're going to do this. How do we do it? And then Seung is like, well, I could set up some shows in Asia too. And I'm like, wow. Okay. Like, and I'm like, all right, I can set up some shows in America. So all of a sudden in the span of 15 minutes, it's like, we're touring Asia and Europe and America. <laughs> and only much later do Orestes and I find out from Young that like, um, because of the time difference, he did the call after he'd been at the pub and it had several drinks. <laughs> so he was um, unusually pliable, but um, yeah. But so, yeah, so we did, um, we rehearsed in Asia. We rehearsed in Canada. We did two rounds in Asia. We played Europe. And then we did a, a round of like, I don't know, like five or six shows in America. And then we called it a day. Right. 
But that did that feel like a nice sense of completion, having that little kind of, you know, like delayed encore? Yeah, it was beautiful. I mean, I, I, I can't talk about it in any, I mean, it, it's hard to talk about, not because, it's hard to talk about. Um, so I'm a writer and I'm an editor, like words are my business. I'm right now I'm rewriting someone else's book. I mean, I've made my business by like, you know, being able to communicate things. This is a hard thing to communicate because, um, uh, because I'm afraid I'm gonna sound really self-aggrandizing and I don't mean to, because um, it's such horseshit when someone says, oh, like it was this incredible honor and it was really humbling, but, um, I don't know, man, like, again, this subculture meant everything to me. It saved my life. And um, I know how much the bands that meant a lot to me meant to me. You know, like, I know how intimate it was, it is to spend hours and hours with your favorite band's music. And so to like go on tour, you know, 20 years, 21 years after all this happened and to have people come up to you and say, you know, um, as they did at all tomorrow's parties, like I came from Macedonia to see you guys, you know, I took off work and drove, you know, 400 kilometers to see you guys. And after you play, I got to get in the car and drive back and I'm doing it. Um, to hear someone say, I flew from Australia to see you guys to play in Hong Kong and among the audience, which by the way, was not enormous, but among the audience is some kid who can't speak English, who flew from Taiwan, who had copies of our record that he somehow found in Taiwan and gave them to us and had to have someone translate to us that he wants to get our autograph. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, dude. Sorry about that. Jesus. No, that's okay. Um, uh, it's really meaningful. Um, it's it's um, I don't know, man. It's it's more than any human has has the right to hope for. Um, it's it's crazy. I mean. Dude, that was ten years ago. I, I I can't get over it. I mean, um, I'll I'll I'll. Uh... Jesus Christ, I'm such a wuss. I can't believe this. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll 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 remember it forever. There there was a guy who came up to us after our last show in London, um, who had a traumatic brain injury and has a severe seizure disorder because of it, and um, he has to live in a group home because he needs help, and. You know, when he heard that Bitch Magnet was playing, he was telling the people there, he's like, I have to go see this band. Like, you, you don't understand. I ha you have to come with me and I have to see this band. And um, one of his triggers for his seizure disorder is loud music. So they, don't want, they didn't want to do it, but he had to do it. And they let him go. Um, and, uh, and so he came up to, so he told me this story afterwards and I'm just like, oh my God. And he's like, you know, so when people tell you that your music is convulsive, well, they're right. And I was just like, I mean, like, you know, kill me now. Like, I'm done. I don't need to do anything else for the rest of my life. That, like, how much more beautiful is it going to get? 
you know, like, I don't have the words for it. So yeah, yeah it was, it was amazing. It was moving. Um, I hope I captured some of this feeling. I hope I'm able to communicate some of that feeling in my book. I mean, I'm in awe of it. I mean, dude, I was like, we, we all, have, we all have a conception of ourselves. Okay. Like, you know, like you, you're a grown man with, with a, with a raft of like grown up things behind you. Um, uh, you know, um, I, you know, I was able to write a book, you know, I've like, you know, written for magazines and edited magazines and done this and done that. Um, you know, what at heart is your self-conception? You know, like, wh where does it come from? You know, and I feel that for guys like, you know, you and me, um, I could be wrong, but, you know, I feel that for guys like you and me, and you know, for that matter, the people listening to this, like your self-conception is the kid alone in a room, you know, fuck, Jesus, I got to get it together. A kid alone in a room, you know, maybe really lonely, maybe rejected by everybody around them, you know, misunderstood, I'm doing air quotes. <laughs> um, and there's this thing, there's this little sliver of the world where they're, they feel seen and understood and where like, it makes sense and where they derive enormous comfort from everything else. And like, maybe there's terrible stuff going on in their lives. By the way, th this part is not me. Maybe like their home is abusive. Maybe you know, their mother and father is not present. Maybe they died. You know, maybe something terrible is happening to them or has happened to them. But here's the thing that, um, where they're safe. And like, so, you know, I feel that the self-conception is that lonely kid or that just that kid alone in a room listening to music. This is the one thing that understands you and that you understand. And to, um, I don't know, like to have been in a band where there's a chance that you're making that music that people are getting that from. I mean, I, I don't even know what to say about that. Yeah, it's and like, like, I mean, like, you know, to, or even if it's not that, like, even if it's nowhere near as like, as, as holy as I'm making it sound, even if it's, um, you know, you, you're a grown ass man and you're like, you're in your forties, your fifties and you're tired. I'm tired. You're tired. We're busy. We have life going on. But like some band from your youth is, is playing. And no matter how inconvenient it is, like if you're going to drive, 300 kilometers, if you're going to have to go to work the next day and you're going to feel like absolute crap for a week, you know, you're going to do it. And to be in a band that people do that for, I mean, I should be paying those people, you know, I mean, I, I don't know what to do. Thanks. Like, it, whatever I can say is not enough. Yes. Well, blimey. So that must uh, have been... Do, do, do me a favor. When you edit that, try to make me not sound like an idiot or like a thirsting <laughs> jerk. I mean, I, I, I don't know if it even makes sense. Seriously. Oh, it, it all makes sense. But I, just, I guess it's something when it's that precious, it is kind of hard. And when you realize it had that much meaning, it's even harder, isn't it really? So, but it must also be so tinged when you have to say goodbye to your bandmates again. And you've had that kind of relationship, which is so cemented in your dna really isn't it yeah it's it's, it's complex um and uh you know and and it's it's also odd like you know interacting with each other as grown adults and like seeing flashes of that person that you knew when you were like 19 but at the same time you know you realize like oh wait there's an entire lifetime and a half since then and like things are different and like that person is different and it's not just that and like you see some patterns recur but then you see new things to deal with and um you know, it's interesting. And it's like, I don't know, it was like, it was a lovely respite for the three of us from like, you know, real life. And it was, it was like a, just a crazy way to visit some precious thing. And, and, but, 
also, you know, to understand that like to do it for a set amount of time and put it back on the shelf and recognize that like, okay, you know, there's a time and place for this. Like, and to understand and be okay with understanding that like, look, you know, there are bands that did this and got back together and had second careers that are amazing. And like, in which they make music as good as their first career, if not better. I mean, Mission of Burma, Dinosaur mm-hmm. Jr. Dinosaur Jr. just made a really good record. Like they're, they're older than I am. That's great. Um, you know, we understood, you know, early on, like that's not going to happen with us and, and that's okay. And like, you know, that's cool. Um, and, you know, I, I'd like to say, you know, I don't quite know how to characterize my relationship with, at, at the time I didn't know how to characterize my relationship with those guys. I've since had a lot more contact with the rest of because we have another musical project. But at the time I didn't know how to characterize a relationship, except to say this, like literally if one of them called me and said, hey, um, I'm in London, do you want to fly over and meet me for a drink tomorrow? Like there's a pretty good chance I would get on that plane. Like, I mean, I don't know why. Like, I mean, like, it's not like they're my best friends, but there's just like this thing. And it's, it's, it's a very, I don't know how to characterize it, you know? It goes beyond being peers. It goes beyond being friends. It's just some something. Yes, um, absolutely. I mean, I mean, you you have put out several sort of solo albums as well, haven't you? Uh, I, I had a band um, uh, called the Vineland in the '90s, which uh, you know we we had some singles. It's fine if you don't know them. Uh, I don't think it's. Uh, I'm fine leaving that on the shelf. Um, Orestes and I are in a new project called We Contain Multitudes, and. Um, we're actually finishing up um, like the, we, we have an album ready to go and we'll be putting it out um, shortly. We had a label teed up um, a while ago, but COVID-19 um, severely messed with that label's business. And um, the, 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 the person running the label called me and was like, look, I'm sorry. I don't know what's gonna happen with this label. I can't do the record. I'm sorry. I'm like, I, I get it. That's cool. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah, so the music continues. I mean, it's, it's in a different context. I mean, there's, uh, I don't know if you can see, there's, uh, there are guitars in this room that are out, that I play, you know, like in a different way, but I mean, it's, you know, it's still part. It's, it's just, there. it's all there. So look, just, just one last kind of question, which might be hard to answer, but if you could have said something, something to your 16 or 18 year old self starting out, is there some sort of little bit of advice that you would or just say, look, do that, that's good. Or just try and do this, because that might be even better. Is there anything that, you know, just some key thing that you would have just thought, yeah, that's, that's something that I've learned over the decades, some sort of wisdom? Um, sure, practice your guitar more. Don't let whatever happened goes to your head. Uh, be kind to your bandmates. You be, and be kind to the other people around you. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, that's probably not what you wanted to hear. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's always kind of funny because most people say very similar things like practice more, enjoy it, don't drink so much. And yeah, Jarbo well, from the Swan said, you know, just to get as much education as you can in your life. And I thought, well, that's, that's just that's like... You know, it. Um, let, let, let me think about that. Um, uh, uh, I, I, I want to I put something like funnier, but put a better bow around things. Um, oh yeah, th- this is a big one. Take notes. I mean, like one reason why, um, I mean, I had a lot of detail in my book because, you know, um, it was so interesting and exciting to me when it was happening. And like, I already had aspirations of being a writer. So I was like keeping pretty detailed um, journals, like not for any self-indulgent reason, but 
I'm sorry, not for any self-indulgent reason, but because what was happening was so interesting to me. Um, like it was just it, like, and every day was just so exciting and different and so much stuff happened. And like, I, you know, when you see it on paper, you're like, oh yeah, that. And like, oh, when you see it on paper, it's like, oh, that happened in, you know, Karlsruhe. It didn't happen in Brussels or whatever, or, you know, um, oh, it wasn't Nottingham, it was Leeds, you know, um, that's useful. Um, oh, uh, wear earplugs. That's a big one. Yes. Yeah, yeah. How are your ear? How are your ears? They're not too bad, actually. Did you just see the film Sound of Metal? I did, and um, yeah, it kind of gave me an anxiety attack. Um, the the uh, the I think it's it's. I, I had a hard time with the movie, in part because the dilemma. What what happened to the main character was terrifying. Like, I mean, that th that's absolutely terrifying. But also, like the choices he made to try to get things back, because like he wanted it so bad, were really hard to watch because they were very bad choices. And I, I, will, I will leave it at that for people, who, um, uh, for people who haven't seen it. You know, David, can I do something corny? Can I read a, like a few sentences from my book that kind yes, of- Yes, that right. would be magic. Okay. So maybe this is, Maybe this is a better way to sum up what I've been trying to, what I was trying to say at the end. Um, uh, as to do the book, um, you know, I decided that, you know, honestly, a memoir written by the guy who was in Bitch Magnet isn't that interesting. And it's much better if it's about this, you know, time and underground we're talking about. Mm. So I talked to a bunch of people. I talked to like 60 or so people, um, extended interviews about their experiences and um, had some really great ones. And um, One of my favorite interviews was with uh, Clint Conley of Mission of Burma, who were a very important band to me and whose arc was really interesting in just figuring this all out. Um, you know, because Mission of Burma kind of were a band before, they, they were trying to play the circuit before it existed, um, but then they were able to come back and make really great records as grown men. And it was just really interesting to me. And they're all, they all very smart and um, articulate. And I think unknowingly, um, Clint, who is a very generous and a very wise man, you know, gave me like the perfect way to end the book. Um, and it was this quote. And so I'm, I'm gonna read his quote and then I'm gonna read what I wrote. Um, <laughs> so this is Clint. I ended up in a band that has a really small following. People with gigantic record collections. People who have socially maladapted lives because of their love for music. But those are the people I wanted. And I heard, I heard him tell me that. And I'm like, that's perfect. Because, as I say in the book and I'm reading, those are the people I wanted to because those are the people we are. And like, all I wanted, all I wanted out of this was to like, you know, be among people uh, who I wanted to be around and to maybe play some music that maybe they, some of them appreciated. And to be able to do that, uh, I've had a very fortunate life. Um, being able to play music that these people, that some of them responded to is probably the highest, the highest honor I'll ever have. I, yes. and I, mean that, I mean that as fucking deeply as I can, baby. I swear. You're, you're a brutal interviewer, dude. Like you like made me cry and everything. I mean, God, <laughs> Jesus, God. They warned me about you vicious gutter journalists from the UK, you tabloid minded people. 
It's just digging the dirt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> going to show up in the Daily Express or the Daily Mail. You're going to get a savage of me. I know how it's going to go. <laughs> yeah. Yes, well, perhaps not. But, well, thank you ever so much. And I will, before I go to bed, send you that link to the Stuart Lee radio show because um, it will make you really smile when you hear Stuart talking about his also love. And he's done, like I said, he did two. He's done one on the 80s, one on the early 90s. He's probably going to do a few others. But it's very beautifully done, and, and you obviously know him. And uh, it will, I, I can't wait to hear it. I, I, I want to hear all of it because um, his thoughts about music are so interesting. He's, he's um, I'm just... I'm a giant fan of that guy. What can I tell you? Yes, and it's good. But look, thank you ever so much for this. This is oh, you're very welcome. I'm sorry um, I was late. Oh. No, that's fine. That's life. I'm here. But look, I'll keep in touch. But thanks again for, for your time and thanks for the music because it's amazing. So, um, oh God, you're killing me. Thank, thank you, thank you for uh, listening to me on this, David. And uh, obviously, send me a link when all this goes live. I will. Okay, take care. Cheers, mate. Great meeting Cheers. you. Cheers. Bye bye. And that was me in conversation with John Fine from Bitch Magnet. A massive thank you for that. If you want to contact me, I know, lucky you. Um, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86show. Also, these have all been archived. And you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Yes, indeed. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.